Well, a lot of times we say, boy, I need a break. I need a vacation. People say, I want a vacation. We need a time of rest and a break. And most people love their vacations. Our culture is so driven to achieve and accomplish that holidays are a welcome break. And, and many people say that if it was up to them, they'd be on vacation all the time. You know. Uh, and they also say things like, if Adam and Eve hadn't fallen, we wouldn't be working. We'd be in a state of rest. Well, the truth is that there was work before the fall. And so we'll see that as we go through that. You know, How do you feel about work? And, and do you love your work? And, you know, they, I saw a study the other day that said about 78% of the people do not really love their work, that, that if they could, they wouldn't even do it. Uh, but it's their job, and they say, this is my job, this is how I earn my money. Uh, I think it's really great if you love to do what you get to do, if you love it. And I love it. I get. I love what I get to do. So uh, it's it's fun for me. For for there's hard parts, but it's fun. Some people you go to work and you love it. You you say I can hardly wait to go do my job or do this. And then some, it's not very much fun. In this passage, we we see that God makes the man and He puts him in the garden. We won't. We'll see it as we get later on in the passage. We see He actually told him to keep the garden, to cultivate it, and all of those kind of things. And and we're going to talk about work a little bit, a little bit tonight. In First Corinthians chapter ten, verse thirty-one, He says, "Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God." And when you think about our jobs and work and rest and all of those things, how does that fit together? This evening, the details of the creation of man and the responsibility given to him by God. Also, as we start the chapter, he deals a little bit about this whole idea of of the Sabbath day. And have you ever heard people say that Sunday is the Lord's Sabbath? I've heard people teach that, that this is really our Sabbath. That's how they say it. It's our, it's our Sabbath day, and we're supposed to treat this in the same way that the Jewish people treated the Sabbath. In fact, a lot of people think Sunday is the Sabbath. When you look in the Bible and it says you shall work six days and rest on the Sabbath, a lot of people think Sunday is the Sabbath. Sunday is the first day of the week, not the last day of the week. We're, uh, the last day of the week is Saturday. That's the Sabbath day. So we'll talk about it as we go through it. Chapter 2 gives us details of the man. Before we see that, we have to see this God resting. And uh, why did he rest? And, and what is the Sabbath day? And what is Sabbath for? Are we supposed to keep a Sabbath day? How does all this work? And let's start with just a, just a, a little brief review of, the, you know, God. We saw that God, we, the first chapter is God created the heavens and the earth in six days. And we saw the successive days, how he shaped and formed things. He created the light and the darkness and separated them, I mean, created the light, separated from the darkness, separated the water from the air, separated the land from the sea, brought forth vegetation on the earth. And, and the amazing thing about it, and just remember that he didn't say, I'm going to make a whole bunch of seeds and put them in the ground and watch them grow up. He made the plants. He made the trees. He made the animals. He, he made all of that. And uh, uh, I talked to somebody last week. We were just getting in person said, you know that old age-old question, which came first, the what? Chicken or the egg? We know the answer. What came first? The chicken came first. I mean, that's the way it is. I mean, people, uh, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the animals. He created the trees. He created the mountains. He created it all. He created the vegetation. And he created man in his own image with the mind, the emotion, and the will, the concept of eternity in his heart. You know, I think the, the great thing about it is when you think about mankind, even even right now, Every one of us, according to Ecclesiastes 5, we have eternity in our hearts. We know that there's something beyond this right here. It's just inside of us. And people want to say, well, I think when you die, you die. No, you, you may think that, but you really don't think that. You know there's something else beyond this. And then that other aspect of 1 Corinthians 2, Romans chapter 2, the whole idea that the law is written on our hearts. There's a right and wrong. It's a conscience. We'll see it. We got that at the fall. We got that from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll talk about it as we go through it, but there's some great things there. God created man, 
And as in chapter 1, here's the overview. And notice how he says it. Verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let's make them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over the earth, every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He that's it. And that's his summary statement. And we're going to see in Genesis 2, it wasn't exactly like that. The summary statement is, I made people. I made male and female. When you get to Genesis chapter 2, you find out that he made the man first, and then he made the woman. So we get the details in chapter 2. One thing I like in verse 28 of chapter 1, God blessed them, said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God placed man and put him into this world, and he was to rule this world and to have dominion over this world. And it was incredible. We realized there was no death. And we don't think about that, but there's no death. There's animals and plants and everything, and, 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 and there's no death because death didn't enter this world until sin. So it's not until Genesis chapter 3 that we see sin, and when we see sin, we see death. And if you ever realize that when God, if you get to the end of chapter 3, when God killed that animal and made coats of skin for Adam and Eve, that may have been the first time they ever saw anything die, ever. Any animal, anything, die. And we'll see it as we go through it. Last time we got our summary statement, verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. No sin, no death, no destruction. Everything shaped and formed according to his plan. But then you look at our world now and we go, it's not exactly like that. Something has happened. What happened? What happened? Sin entered the world. And death by sin. Death passed upon all for all sin. Man has fallen. Sin, destruction. Romans chapter 8 even says that the whole creation groans and travails due to sin and death. In fact, the Bible actually talks about that this world is sort of groaning, waiting for God to come back and say, all right, I'm going to fix you. I had it fixed good. Sin entered everything, caused all the death and destruction and problems. I'm going to fix it back up. In Genesis chapter 1, we have seen the six days of creation. Before we get to the details of the creation of man, there's the final day. And we see it... The seventh day, the Sabbath. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. It's a summary statement. He said, heavens and earth were completed. Being, it began formless and void, now completely in shaped and form. And when he says, and all their hosts. And the reference is most likely, it, since it's a summary statement, and it's all seven days, and everything put together, it would be the summary statement of human beings. And animals and even angels. Now, the, the question is, and I, I really don't want to go into detail on that tonight because it's not really part of our passage. But the question always is, a lot of people say, well, when, did the, when were the angels created? If you see the heavens and the earth and you see the plants and animals and everything and human beings, what about, anim- what about angels? The best we can tell is that angels probably were already created before the heavens and earth because it ain't, it's also about the angels singing for joy at the creation. And we, and the, and the age-old question is, when did Lucifer, when did Satan fall, when he was guarding the throne of God, as we see in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, when did that happen? And most believe that probably happened before this creation. And so we'll, we'll, we'll just think about that, especially when we get a little bit into chapter 3. So his summary statement is, thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. And then it says, by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. He rested. And the word there is Sabbath, Sabbath, which is the word to rest. It means literally to cease. It says God did all this and then he ceased. He rested. So he ceased from his work because it was finished. And, and, the, and the bottom line is God didn't rest because he said, you know, 
It takes a lot out of you to create. You know, and so I need a break. We know that's not true. In fact, the question is, and a lot of people always argue over, and we talked about this last week, those six days, were they really six days? Were they six long periods of time? You know, I told you that when you look at it from the Hebrew language, if you take it literally, the only possible meaning could be six literal days and not six long periods of time. People say, well, God, uh, you know, could God do that in six days? Well, the real question is, why didn't he do it just like this? I mean, why would he take six days? He didn't, he, he, could, he could have said, let there be. And all the creation be in just a second, a, you know, moment of time. We know that the best we can tell it was the pattern, that he worked six days and rested on the seventh, because we're going to see later on in, uh, that that's what he tells the, the nation of Israel to do. He says, man, you shall work six days and rest on the seventh. For in six days God created the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh. So it seems to be the pattern. So by the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. It's finished. But there's a rest. And look what he goes on to say. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. That means set it apart. Because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now God blessed this day. The idea is that we're going to see, and no, and no matter what people try to do, there is a pattern of our world that seems to flow on a seven-day cycle. There's six days in a rest, and six days in a rest, or whatever you want to do it. There's seven days, and seven days, and seven days, and seven days. And that's how it functions. And it's not just something we made up and said, let's make up a calendar and let's put this many days down. Because when you've seen that some cultures have tried to say, let's have a four-day week or let's have an eight-day week. or another, And it doesn't work. It doesn't work with the sun. It doesn't work with the moon. It doesn't work with anything. And so it goes back down that this was God's plan, that he would have six days and a rest or that he would have a seven-day cycle. And so God blessed this day. God blessed this seventh day and sanctified it. The Hebrew word is kwadah, which means to set apart. He set this day apart. It becomes special. Now, and when we look at it, here we go, what's so special about it? We're going to see later on, especially when he comes to the nation of Israel, and he talks to them about the law and how he wants them to live as a culture and as a people group. He says, you work six days, you rest on the seventh. That's his plan. That's what he's going to do. So he rested, as he says, from all the work which God had created and made. So he set apart a special day, which is called the Sabbath. And we're going to see later on all this involved with that. Now, when, when, when we think about this seventh day, we find, we find it's a unique day. Because it wasn't just a day that he put man on the earth and said, listen, just go out there and just kind of hang around, take care of the garden, do all this stuff. And then on the seventh day, you just don't have anything to do. Just take a break. What we find is that Adam and Eve, it appeared on the seventh day, and Cain and Abel, it appeared on the seventh day, they would bring sacrifices to God. The passage in Genesis 3 says, at the end of the days, at the end of the time, when Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel were bringing their things, it would say, at the end of the days. In fact, let me see if I can find what I'm thinking about for you. Uh, in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 4, it says, It came about in the course of the time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord, the fruit of the ground. Abel brought also his part. When it says the course of the time, it's literally the idea of the end of the days. And it's not talking about the days of their lives. It's as sand through the hourglass, so are the days. Anyway, it's not talking about the days of our lives. It's talking about the days of the week at the end of the days. It appears that there is a cycle set up, even as early as Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve and all that, that they would work and do things for six days, and on the seventh day is a day of worship, a day that they'd bring their sacrifices. The Hebrew passage says that the end of the days refers to the end of the week. Now, 
The first day of the week is Sunday. The last day of the week is Saturday. For the Jewish people, the Sabbath is Saturday. In fact, the way the calendar sets up, at on Friday evening, when the sun goes down, that is Saturday night, and then the next day is Saturday day. That's the Sabbath. So when you talk to Jewish people, their Sabbath begins what we'd call our Friday evening. And it's a set-apart day. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, the Sabbath day was set apart for the Jewish people to rest and to worship and to have a special day. They worked six days and rested. It's a time of worship and rest. In the New Testament, there, there seems to be a time of rest. Now, not un, we're not under Mosaic law. We have never been under a Mosaic law. We're not to work Sunday through Friday and rest on the Saturday. We're not supposed to do that. A lot of people say, okay, we know that the first day of the week is the day that we do what? We worship on the first day of the week. And some say, here's our Sabbath. Well, it's not called a Sabbath. It's called the Lord's Day. But there is a pattern that you see in the Scripture that people are to rest, that you work and rest, you work and rest. And there's a reason for that, because if you work all the time, what happens to you? You work you work completely out. God has a plan. And he says, I want you to break, to rest. What we can see in the Scripture is because Jesus rose from the grave on the first day of the week, the body of Christ, the church, we meet together on the first day of the week, and we worship. In fact, every Sunday could be called Resurrection Day. We're going to have Easter coming up in not, not too long, three, four, five weeks. We'll celebrate Easter, and we'll always talk about this. You know, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it goes all the way back to, you know, to the Passover time when Jesus died and then rose on the first fruits. But the truth is, every Sunday that we meet together, we could stand up every Sunday and say, this is Resurrection Day because we meet together on the first day of the week because this is the day our Savior rose from the grave. Now, the... The Ten Commandments, you know, there were over 613 commandments in the Mosaic Law. Everybody talks about the top ten, the Ten Commandments. Of those Ten Commandments, nine are restated in the New Testament. Now, we're not under the Mosaic Law. We're not under those Ten Commandments in a law system way. But nine of the Ten Commandments are restated in different ways throughout the New Testament. What's the only commandment of the top ten that aren't restated? Sabbath day. It's only one. Because we're not under a Sabbath day. We're not under the Mosaic law. I mean, you could naturally sing if the, if the law said don't lie or steal or covet, that's going to be translated again in the New Testament. But a system. When people could, now I'm going to say this, it's going to sound heretical, but you're not under the Ten Commandments. You're not under that. That's Mosaic law. The Mosaic law isn't divided. And you can say we're going to take the Ten Commandments out and the sacrificial system you don't do, but you have to do this part of the Mosaic law. No, the Mosaic law is one part. And the Mosaic law, Christ is the end of the law to all who believe. We've never been under the Mosaic law. But the aspect of those principles that are in the Ten Commandments, nine of the ten are restated in New Testament teaching of Jesus Christ and the letters. And so there, there is a principle, though, that we find that... At least one day a week, you're to rest and worship. In the same way they would work six days and rest, we rest and then work. See, there's a symbolic aspect of working and resting because they were working, waiting for the one who was going to bring the rest, 
Jesus Christ. Now, we've already got the one who bring the rest, brings the rest, Jesus Christ. So we rest first, and then we work. That's that idea. Now, I want you to understand, I'm not saying that this day is a Sabbath day, and this day is only a day that you can do nothing, because throughout history there have been people who've taught that we're under Sabbath now, and you couldn't do anything on Sunday, you couldn't play, you couldn't do sports, you couldn't do anything. Uh, even the great Eric Little who I love. I've read his biography. He was one of the great men that ever lived. He was the chariots of fire guy. He was confused because in his upbringing, he thought Sunday was the Sabbath. That's why he wouldn't run in the Olympic Games on a Sunday because he thought it was the Christian Sabbath. And he said, I'm not, I'm supposed to keep the Sabbath. I can't run. He was wrong. I mean, I hate to say it. He's wrong. Now, in his own personal, he may have said, I've decided that on the Lord's day I will not run. That would have been a different thing. But he taught that it was, he thought it was the Sabbath day. It's not. If you choose to say on the first day of the week, when I come together with other believers to worship, I'm going to choose not to do certain things. That's between you and the Lord. You have the freedom to do what you want to. But bottom line is, this seems to be the day that you can see in the Scripture that we come together to worship. We come together corporately to worship. Um, I never went to church growing up. Went once when I was six, once when I was twelve. I don't think my, I, I led my mother to Christ after I trusted Christ after going off to college. But I can still remember growing up. My mother grew up in Mississippi. We all grew up in Mississippi, and she grew up in in in, uh, in the Deep South. Which, whether you went to church or not, you you thought that you were supposed to go to church and be a part of it. And so, even growing up, my mother thought that it was probably not best to play for me to go play football or anything on Sunday. She'd just say, well, maybe you shouldn't go play. And I'd go, well, bye, I'm going to go play. I mean, you know, I didn't know. I didn't go to church. Why did I have to think you couldn't play on Sunday? But she just thought it'd probably be better if you don't because in Sunday the what? Sabbath. That's what she thought. A lot of people think that. Some call Sunday the Christian Sabbath. It's never called this in the Bible. It's called the Lord's Day. You have great freedom. Great freedom. That's the one thing I think that a lot of people don't grasp as Christians. We're not under a law system. In fact, the only law system we're under is what's called the law of Christ. New Testament talks about the law of Christ. The law of Christ is to love the Lord you go with all your heart and all your soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he clarifies it and says, love others as I have loved you. So the law that we're under in the New Testament is not a Mosaic law system. It is the law of Christ, which is the law of love. So you have great freedom. And you can, uh, you can take, you could, I, I, my advice and the pattern we see in the scripture is that you should not work seven days a week. You should take some time off. You have to. You have to break. Now, Sunday is not a day off for me. For a lot of people it is. For a lot of people in our culture, we work five days and rest two. Most, a lot of people work Monday through Friday and then they have Saturday and Sunday off. I think that's wonderful. I think that's wonderful. I have chosen to take off Monday and work Tuesday through Sunday. That's just what I do. I work most every Saturday. Sometimes I don't work as long. I don't work as long on a Saturday as I normally do on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Sunday. But I take Monday off because I can't take this day off. Y'all won't let me, right? <laughs> right. So, uh, and I think for all of us, we look at our lives, we look at our jobs, we look at our pressures, we look at things, and we say. 
there's got to be a break in there somewhere. And so you see a principle from the Bible of working and resting, working and resting. We'll see it later on, especially for the nation of Israel. He really put it down that way. God wants man to have a day of rest and, and a time of worship. And so in our culture, you can work Monday through Friday. You can have Saturday off and you can have Sunday off. And my advice would be to use Sunday as at least to, to, at least to come together with fellow believers to worship and to, and to have a great time at that. And, but that still gives you great freedom even on this day. So please don't put yourself under a law system. Please understand you have great freedom. Because I know people who, in churches, and they feel like that Sunday they can't do anything, not shouldn't, shouldn't do anything, uh, that, uh, that they don't have the freedom that I think the Scripture teaches. Take the time to rest and worship, especially on, on this day. Um, it's a it's a great time of fellowship. It's time to be refreshed. Well, God set aside the Sabbath day, and I think the uh, is the next what's the next slide? Oh, there it is. Yeah, the Sabbath day of rest. It's completeless because all is done. He worked six days. Everything's completed. So the seventh day is the day of rest to show it's done. It's blessing. It's a blessing because it's going to be a rest time. Remember that by the time of Jesus Christ, under the Mosaic Law, all these. Religious leaders thought that the, that man was made for the Sabbath. They said, that's a Sabbath day. You can't do anything. Remember all the stupid rules that they had? Just an incredible thing. You know, I've told you all this one before, but on the Sabbath day, you, could, you couldn't walk very far. If a woman couldn't look in the mirror, under the Mosaic, not under the Mosaic Law, under the rules of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, a woman could not look in the mirror on the Sabbath day because she might want to fix something. And that would be considered work. And if you went outside and you got mud on your clothes, if you had your, you went out there and mud got up on you, you could hit it three times. You could wait till it dried, and then you could hit it three times. And that's all, because anything after that would be considered work. I mean, that's how they had people. They were so, they couldn't do anything. You know, Jesus' guys were walking through the, the grain, the field on the Sabbath day, and they, they were getting some, something to eat. And, and they, the religious leader said, they're harvesting, can't harvest. I mean, it just became ridiculous. It, it was supposed to be a day of blessing. And then the third thing about the Sabbath day or the rest aspect, it was holiness. It was set apart. And I think that we can take from this, not that we're under a Sabbath and not that we're under Mosaic law, but there is a great principle that we rest and it's a day of blessing and a day of being set aside to, to spend time worshiping our Savior. So in our culture, you got two days. you got Saturday, you can do anything you want to. you got Sunday, you can do anything you want to. But it would be a great day to come together with some other believers and do what you're doing now. So thanks for coming. It's really it's fun. Now, let's let's think about uh, let's think about the details of the creation. And as I said, in the normal Hebrew way, you get the overview in chapter one, the details in chapter two, and the, I think the most important aspect is the creation of man. He's the pinnacle of everything. It's funny that you see day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, and you get all these different things. You get day six, and you got these animals and everything. And then in day six, he says God created man, and he tells man what to do, and he tells what man can eat. And then as he gets into chapter two, he goes back and starts over in a sense and says, Now let me tell you the details of how I did. Man. And Genesis 1 says, male and female, he created them. If that's all we had, what would we think? That he created the man and the woman at exactly the same time. That's what we think. Well, we got Genesis 2, which gives us the details. So look what it says, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, this is a little bit different. When you see the words, this is the account, all throughout the book of Genesis, there are four or five places where it'll say, this is the account. It's called the toledot. That's a, that's a Hebrew word that is a, is a signpost that says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to now start over and give you some information. 
It talked about it in Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, he says, now, this is the account of. We'll get a little bit further on, and he'll say, this is the account of this, and it'll be Adam and Eve, and it'll be something else. So he does that through the book. So if you can read this, you say, oh, he's starting over. He's going to give us some information about the creation, heavens and the earth, when he put it all together. This is the details. Now, look what he goes on to explain. Gives us an explanation. And he says, Now, no shrub of the field was yet on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Now, some people say, Are you talking about that there were no plants or anything anywhere? Is this before the, 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 the fourth day or fifth day? or what, what is he doing? We think that he's doing here is explaining about this area that we're going to call the Garden of Eden, or that he calls the Garden of Eden, where he's talking about, I'm going to make a special area and I haven't put the shrubs or the trees or the plants in there yet. I haven't put man in there yet. I haven't even described this place. I haven't done it yet. And so he says, here's this account of the heavens and earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heaven. And he says, now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, no plant of the field yet sprouted. Then when he says in the earth, the word is Eretz. It means the land. And it appears to be it's a particular land. And there's really two aspects to talk about this. That he may be talking about plants that were going to be placed in the garden when he says no shrub of the field was yet in the land, is what it says. And no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the land, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. So it seems to indicate maybe he's talking about the plants that are going to be placed in this garden or there's another view, is that is he's talking about plants that required cultivation. That when he, in the fifth day, and he put all the plants and the seeds and, and the trees and everything, that these were trees and plants that didn't require cultivation. But in this part where he's dealing with man, he actually puts plants and trees and things that require man to till them, to take care of them, to cultivation. So that's the two views. Charles Ryrie says this. He says, plants that required cultivation didn't appear until Adam was created and could cultivate them. So Ryrie's view is not that these are just the particular plants for the garden, but that God had these plants that required cultivation, cultivation and he did not put them there until he made the man. And then he says this. There had been no rain. Now, why is there no rain on the earth? Best we can tell, back in Genesis, you know, the chapter one, he said that he took and he separated. He had the water and the ground, you know, the water, and he divided the water from the water. He put water below, water above, and made the expanse, which was the heavens. And it appeared that there's a cloud cover around the earth. And he goes on to say, "There's no rain." And then he says in verse 6, But a mist used to grow, rise up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. It is still believed that it probably did not rain on the earth until the flood. Most believe if you look through the pattern of the, of the passages and you get all the way over to 4, 5, 6 and before you find Noah, that up to that time, the best we can tell, it's still, there was the cloud cover over the earth, and it still didn't rain. That a mist came up and watered everything. And that when the flood happened, as you know, it says the waters from above and the waters from below came up, and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, and the wind you know, went all the way up. Three years, they, I mean, uh, over a year they were on the ark. But you understand that from that time, after they came back, everything was different. And he said there's going to be seed and harvest and all of these kind of things. And the best we can tell, that, that cloud covering is gone. And mankind lived before the, before the flood 900 and 800 years. And after the flood, the very first generation lived 300 and something years after the flood. What changed? Most 
scholars and people who look at all this say that apparently because that cloud cover had protected, you know, with the sun protected people and they were able to live longer. Now that the cloud cover was gone and the rays of the suns came directly on the people, that they begin to live shorter periods of time, 300 years, 200 years, 175 years, 150 years, and just continued to go down. And you look at all the different generations, it continued to go down. So he's given kind of an idea here, and he says, okay, here's the account. There was, there was really not any plants or anything that, that, uh, that had to be cultivated or anything. God hadn't sent the rain yet. There was a mist. And then he gives us the key. Now, before we get to the creation of man, I want you to see six things in this section. We won't see them all tonight. In fact, we're just going to see the first couple ones, and then we'll get to it as we go through. There are six things we'll see. We're going to seek the creation of the male first. He's going to create the man. His name is Adamah which means the dirt, because he was formed from the dirt of the ground. In fact, when, when he tells Adam in chapter 3 that he's going to die, he says, you'll return to what? To the dust. He says, because dust you are, because his name Adamah meant what? It meant dirt. He, he was dirt, and that's his name. And, and, and that, the Hebrew word for man is ish. The Hebrew word for woman is isha, out of man. But the word, his name, the word ground here is Adamah. And so he's called Adam. He's called Adamah. And so here he is, and so we're going to see the creation of the male first. Then we're going to see the place to live, the garden. Then we're going to see the description of the area. And he talks about these rivers, and he talks about all this stuff. And people always ask questions like, where was the Garden of Eden on this world? Because it was on this earth, right? Where is it? How come we hadn't found it? You ever thought about that? Do you think we have an idea of where it could have been? I think we do from what the description is. We'll see that. Then we're going to see man's responsibility. That was his work. And work was before the fall. And when people say, I wish Adam had never fallen, I wish he had never eaten the fruit, because if he'd never eaten the fruit, we wouldn't have to work. No, they were working long before. Work is, work is a gift from God. Work is not a curse, but work is cursed. Okay? The fifth thing is the special command. We'll see a little bit. We won't, we won't see it tonight. We'll see it next week. The special command. And he gives him some, some, some things he can do and some things he can't do. Now, by the way, all of this comes before he ever makes the woman. I mean, he tells Adam, he says, of all the trees in the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat. She wasn't there. She wasn't created yet. I imagine after she's created, he said, don't even touch that tree. Because when the serpent comes and says to her, why don't you eat that tree? She says, we can't eat it or what? Or touch it. Where did she get the idea you couldn't touch it? I imagine Adam said to her, don't even touch it. Don't even go over there by that thing. Don't touch it. And when we get to Genesis chapter 3 and she's reaching up to get the whatever it is, guess where he is? He's right there going, what are you doing? You going to eat that? Are you going to eat that? Can I have a bite? <laughs> he's right there with her. You think he's off some field somewhere and she's eating and going, Adam, guess what? He's standing right there. It says she ate and she gave to him and he ate. He should have said, uh, 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 we're not going to touch that thing. We're not going to eat that thing. Don't listen to that serpent. But they didn't. And we'll talk about that one. Powerful stuff. So, and then the last thing, the creation of the female, the helpmate to man. What did he say when, when uh, God, when, you know, it's an amazing thing. Uh, he, 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 he went to sleep. When he woke up, he found out he had surgery, and now he's married. 
you know, what a, <laughs> what a day. He goes, thanks a lot. And then he looks over at Eve, which says, you are now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, which is translated into English as va-va-va-boom. You know, you, you, you know. <laughs> so uh, it's amazing. So the creation of the helpmate. Well, let's see it. We'll get to <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. Can we take that off the tape? No, anyway. All right. <laughs> let's go quickly through the creation of the man, the male, Adam. Okay, look at... Um, Let's see the first one. There it is, the man Adam. The Hebrew word is for man there is Adamah, which comes from the idea of ground. So he was formed out of the ground. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, this is pretty special because this is the first time in verse 7 you'll notice it says the Lord God. Up to this time it's been Elohim which is the plural form of God, which is the majestic one, which we think has, is the idea of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, the word for God. Here it says the Lord God, which is a, a unique expression because the word Lord is YHWH. It's the personal name of God in the Old Testament. And then, of course, the word God is Elohim. So it's Yahweh Elohim. And it's the idea of the personal God is involved in this. So it says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became this living being. Living soul is the way some of it is translated. It says, He shaped him. And when it says, He formed man from the dust of the ground, that word formed is a word that is used for a craftsman, for somebody who's like making a work of art, or somebody who's making something that goes, Look at that. I've really made that really special. He takes man from the dust of the ground and he forms him. He's not evolved, didn't come from any animal, didn't come from a monkey, didn't come from a gorilla, didn't come from anything else. God formed man. Back in chapter 1, he says he created man in his image. In chapter 2, he says he took the ground and formed him. And then he breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living being, a living soul. The Hebrew word there is nephesh. It refers to the whole being. It's the, it's the, the immaterial part. In fact, if you said, if, in Hebrew, if you said the nephesh, the soul, you would always connect nephesh with a, with a body. You'd say, well, because it's not just soul just floating around. But the idea there was there's a material and immaterial aspect of a person. And the nephesh is the soul, the, the immaterial part, the part that, that really makes a person a person. And all of us in our lives, or many of us in our lives, have, have been there when loved ones died or have been and seen someone after they passed away or have seen the body or you've gone to the funeral and you realize that there's a body there, but the person's not there. That's the shell. What makes that person is that immaterial part, that soul, that's in that person. And, and you know, death is the separation, the body, from the soul. And so he breathed into this man, this being there, and he became a living being, a living soul. And so we see one who is created in the image of God, able to have a relationship with a living God. And, and last time we saw that, that how unique and special every person is. Each one of us made in the image of God. And that man was created and God formed, uh, was created by God and formed and shaped to be differently, and, and different from the animals, different from anything else. Remember, when he did all these animals, he got it all. And then he said, now let's make man in our image. He didn't say he made the animals in his image. Everything has the, the craftsmanship of God, but not, any, not anything but man was made in the image of God. Not any other animals, not anything like that. 
And so we are really unique and special. Let me just remind you of something, because people always want to talk about creation, evolution. Let's talk about evolution for just a second. Evolution says this. Sometime in the past, there's this big event, this big bang, there's something, and this life process began, and there's this progression of an upward movement from simple to complex. Things go from little bitty and get more and more and more and more and more, and then one species develops into another species somehow along the way over long periods of time. And then man just happens to be at the top because we evolved from some lower form. That's the evolution view. That some period of time way back, it all began moving upward, species to species, long periods of time. Well, the problem with that is this, is that, that, that evolution cannot explain the beginning. Because even when they say, well, a long time ago there was this, well, where did that come from? Where did that come from? There has to be a beginning of something, and God is the one that brought it into being. Number two says that there's an upward process, says evolution, but the laws of nature say there's not an upward process, there's a downward process. The second law of thermodynamics, everything's going the opposite direction. Let me tell you, if you're walking out in the woods, out in the woods by yourself, and you come upon rocks, and they're in a circle, what do you think? Somebody been there. Somebody been there. That just didn't happen, right? In fact, when you come out, you don't find rocks in a circle, what do you find them? They're everywhere. When you find them all lined up perfectly, you say, somebody's been here, you know, right? Because things don't go from a state of disorder to order. They go from a state of order to disorder. That's just the way it is. The third thing about evolution, it says it goes from species to species. But there's no records anywhere of some species becoming another species. There's nothing. Never been found. They keep thinking there will be. In fact, now they're coming up with the idea that there's a spontaneous aspect of going from one species to the other. They may never find the middle. They say, well, I don't think we'll ever find the middle because it just spontaneously went from this to this. The fourth thing is that long periods of time, we've already seen that in our study that in the creation itself there's built in time because of the trees and, 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 and everything. When it was created, if you, when God created the trees, you might look at that tree and say, wow, things been there a long time. No, no, it's been there about a tenth of a second. He just made it. He just put it there. And we talked about this. When he created this man, Adam, right? How old did he look? You, you think he was a four-year-old? A two-year-old? You think he was 30? Perfect age, 58? What do you think he was, right? <laughs> I used to say perfect age, 36. I don't know what's happened. But anyway, over long periods of time, that's tied into the Scripture because I think you see into the creation, there's long periods of time. There's, there's not long periods of time. There's appearance of time. And then the last one is that man is at the top of the chain. That's what it says. Well, no, we're created in the image of the God. We're not at the top of some chain of an evolutionary process. We are created in the image of God. Well, let me quickly go this last part. The number two thing there is the place to live, the garden. Look what he says. The Lord God planted this garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So he takes this 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 garden, this place that he's going to put man to live there, and he puts him into this garden. And and the, the Hebrew word garden means delight. Delight. So he, the Lord God formed a delight. That's what it really has. The idea, this is a, a really neat place. The Greek word for garden is paradisus. What word do we get from it? Paradise. I mean, that's the word. And so he made this garden, and he basically he fixed this beautiful place to live with trees and plants and food. And he's going to bring in animals and everything, and it's going to be, and the man's going to live in this particular place, and it's going to be great. And what has he told him to do? Once, once he gets him the the woman, what's he tell him to do? 
Be fruitful and multiply. Take care of everything. Just, just have a great time. Notice, out of the ground, the Lord God caused every tree that is pleasing the sight and good for food. And then notice, we're going to get very particular here. The tree of life also in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, out of all the things that he did, there are two trees that he calls by name. One is the tree of life, which is in the middle, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we're going to talk about later, especially when we get to chapter 2, the rest part of chapter 2, and get on into chapter 3, that there's, there are two trees there. One is the tree of life. And we're not sure what all this means. Because you're going to remember, after the fall, after they ate the fruit... He says, I do not want them to go into the garden and eat the tree of life and live forever. And you go, wait a minute, I thought we were supposed to live forever. What, what is he talking about? We'll get to that when we get, when we get over a little bit further. He didn't want them to live forever in the state of sin. So he fixed it where they couldn't eat from the tree of life. Later on, you get to the eternal state. What's in the eternal state? What tree is there? tree of life is there. So there's the tree of life, which is in the middle of the garden, and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, some people say, what kind of fruit was that tree? I mean, historically, what has it always been? It's been apple, ate the apple. But it could have been any fruit. It doesn't matter. And it could have been any tree. He just said, see that tree? Don't eat from that tree. We call that tree the what? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if he says to you, don't eat from that tree, you're going to learn right from wrong from that tree. That's why it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because if you don't eat from the tree, you've learned right from wrong by doing what? No, if you don't eat from the tree, you, you've done, learned right from wrong by doing right. If you eat from the tree, you've learned right from wrong by doing wrong. That's why it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll see more. So there is the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we'll see it uh, in the, in the next, next time. In fact, next time we get it, we're going to see these four rivers. We're going to see that he puts the man there. He's going to say it's not good for man to live alone, so I'm going to bring in a helper. And, and stood up. what does he do? Let me ask you a question. He says it's not good for the man to be alone, so I'm going to bring in a helper. What's the thing that he does? Huh? What does he do? Do what? Nope, he doesn't. You can read ahead if you want to. What does it say he does? He says it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man. What does he do first? He brings animals to him. And he's going, giraffe, uh, elephant. Let's call it elephant. Okay, uh, hippopotamus. You know, and he, he names all these names. He names them all. Why did God do that? Why did he bring all these animals by him? He, huh? To find a friend. So I'm going to spend the rest of my life with a giraffe. <laughs> Why did he bring all those animals by? Show that they didn't match him. See, he said he brought them all by, and the man called them all the names, and he gave the names to all this, but there was not found a helper suitable for him. No animal matched him. Why? Because they're not made in the image of God. He is. And there's nobody else like him. And that's why God's going to have to do something different. And we'll see that uh, in the next couple of weeks as we go through it. What have we seen?
God finishes creation and rest. God gives details of the creation of man. He breathed in him the breath of life, and he became a living being, a living soul. God placed this garden, placed the man in the garden, and there are two trees there that are, that are emphasized, the tree of life and the tree of good and evil. So let me give you some applications real quickly. Realize who we are. I mean, realize who we are. We are made in the image of God, but we're fallen because of sin. Now, we're thinking about who we are now. If we look in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see this man, and he's created there, and everything is great. But we were created in the image we were created in the image of God, but we're fallen because when Adam sinned, we, we, uh, the death passed to all, and we all come into this world dead and trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 talks about that. Only in Jesus Christ can there be the forgiveness of sins and that. As Lewis Johnson says, man. Man is adrift in the sea of human sufficiency, and he's unaware of his own peril. There are people who, who they don't realize. We don't, they don't realize what mankind, what we're trouble is. We need a Savior because we're lost. It has been said that there is no more deadly, no disease is more deadly than sin, and no cure more effective than the cross. It's powerful. Bruce Stillman, I, I like Bruce Stillman. He's a, he's a pastor, and he's a good, a good teacher, good speaker, and he said this. He said, what I'm looking for is a Savior. Not somebody to tell me what I ought to do, but someone to forgive me. And we need a Savior. We need someone to give us eternal life by faith. We're made in the image of God, and we need a Savior because we're fallen. As I have a good, a good friend, Ken Shepherd, and he'd say, we're made in the image of God, but it's a cracked image now. It's cracked because we're fallen. The second thing is take the time to rest and worship. Ever how you want to do that, it seems to me that the pattern that you see in the New Testament is that believers would meet together on the first day of the week to worship. And so my recommendation is come together with fellow believers on the first day of the week and worship and sing and praise and study and grow and be trained and equipped and do all those things. It's called the Lord's Day. I also recommend to you that you have some day whether it's just one day a week or even two days a week, if you can, and some of, that you rest, that you rest from your work, that you get refreshed, that you renew so that you can have time and that you, you worship your Savior and you love Him and you rest so that you can continue to do your job for the glory of God. That's, that's what it is. What are your priorities? It, it, do you have a time that you set aside to worship and to rest? You have to do that. Make a priority. My, my application would be definitely... Uh, set aside the Lord's Day as a time to come and worship your Savior and be with fellow believers and enjoy your time and rest and 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 make it a great day. Uh, you know, some people, uh, they say, well, my, my, the thing that really refreshes me is I go out in my, in my yard and I do my yard work. And I say, well, whatever refreshes you, whatever is a great time off, whatever. Uh, I, I don't like yard work. I, I, I don't like any hard work. I don't like anything. I like the rest. But uh, anyway, make a priority, Lord's Day, and, and worship and rest. As fallen people created in the image of God, may we trust God's provision, Jesus Christ, and may we take the time to rest and worship our God and Savior, Christ. May we see all this. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a great night. Help us, Lord, as we continue this study, as we see the creation, as we see uh, the idea of resting on the seventh day and the Sabbath for, the, for that and the idea of being carried over maybe throughout all of history, the idea of resting and worshiping. And then, Lord, help us as we think about the, the details of the creation of man and how he put the man and put him in that garden and, and there were two trees there and, and, and whatever he's going to do with all that, Lord, as we look in the next uh, couple of lessons, we'll see how that fits together. But thank you, Lord, that 
we're made in your image and that uh, we realize that that we are special and unique at the same time we're fallen and we need a Savior. And thank you for loving us so much that you send your Son, Jesus Christ, to give us eternal life as a gift. May we make a priority of our life to rest and to worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.